Hi listeners, it's Risa dropping in, and for the month of August, we're playing some episodes from the Visible Voices archives. August is Civic Health Month. It's a time to showcase the link between voting and health and celebrate efforts that ensure each and every voter has the opportunity to support their community's health at the ballot box. The reality is that 80% of health outcomes are determined by non-clinical factors, such as access to food and access to affordable housing. The Visible Voices podcast and Vote ER invite you to celebrate with us this upcoming August. Commit to action during the fourth annual Civic Health Month or join the free virtual Civic Health Conference. Let's get to the episode. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. And today I'm in conversation with Dr. Alistair Martin. Now scroll all the way back to episode 44 and you'll see that Alistair first joined us then. Between then and now, a lot has happened. He has become the CEO of A Healthier Democracy. He also just completed a year in Washington, D.C. as a White House fellow. Alistair and his organization continue to work at the intersection of civic health and health equity. He himself is research faculty at the Harvard Kennedy School Behavioral Insights Group and clinical faculty at Harvard Med School in the Center for Social Justice and Health Equity. Three of the initiatives that fall under the umbrella of A Healthier Democracy include Vote ER, Get Wavered, and Got Vax. Simply, Vote ER helps register voters through kiosks and emergency departments, also helps healthcare workers register patients, also helps healthcare workers register healthcare workers. Get Wavered is a program that helps ensure patients with addiction get the recovery treatment they need. And Got Vax is a program to help vaccinate high-risk communities where they live and where they work. It's patient-centered. It's health-designed. Okay, the next initiative that you're going to hear about when the conversation begins is something called Link Health, and I really love this initiative. Did you know, audience, that a good percentage of the U.S. population does not have access to high-speed internet? And guess what? High-speed internet is crucial for telehealth. Let's get to the conversation. We have uh, another initiative that we're beginning to launch uh, here in Boston called Link Health. And the problem that we're trying to solve with Link Health is that COVID triggered this pretty dramatic uh, uh, increase in the use of telehealth and telemedicine in this country. And that's good in general. It's a good thing. It, it, it provides us another opportunity to reach our patients, lowers access barriers in, in many cases. However, It can be an incredibly bad thing if we are not careful. It can potentially widen the digital divide. Why? Because in this country, we still have almost 25% of the population that doesn't have access to high-speed internet. And so thankfully, the Biden administration is all over this. They passed um, a provision in the bipartisan infrastructure law called the Affordable Connectivity Program. It's up to $75 a month to pay a patient's internet bills. And it gives them $100 to buy a new computer. Uh, Over 40% of all American households are eligible for this, which is incredible. But we have only just scratched the surface in terms of signing people up. So we've only got 25% of the eligible population signed up. And so Link Health is all about using healthcare spaces and healthcare settings to get people signed up for the Affordable Connectivity Program so that they leave the waiting room with money in their pocket to pay their internet bill and money to buy a computer or a laptop uh, or a tablet. 
And so we've just gotten started here in Boston. We've done a number of clinics helping people get access to the, the program. Yeah, I saw this and uh, I went bananas. I think it's fantastic. And I think it identifies a really, really important need. What we saw in Philadelphia was this amazing expansion during COVID of the use of telehealth. Emergency departments, volumes dropped. No one wanted to come because no one wanted to get infected with COVID. Urgent cares closed and there was a real need. Uh, What we saw is many of us got educated quickly on the use of the software and we were ready to go. And we had a lot of calls, but those calls were from people, to your point, that had the literacy to utilize software and hardware, uh, who had access to internet. And, you know, a lot of times people have phones, but the phones sometimes are audio only. They don't have access to the video. So I think I love this initiative. I think it's addressing a huge need. And I think many people in cities or many people that are in higher resourced or uh, higher socioeconomic standard areas, they have no idea how this change, this pivot in healthcare and the use of healthcare resources is affecting many people, i.e. many people can't even use this quote tool. That's right. That's right. And if we're not careful, you know, we are going to shift to, you know, these really cool, exciting digital interventions, and we are going to leave behind a whole proportion of our, uh, uh, of our patient population because they simply can't get on to the internet. 100%. One of the things we also saw with the use of telehealth was if people uh, didn't speak English, if English wasn't their first language and the access and utilization of language translation, what have you seen with this? Yeah, it's a really good point. It's a very, very good point. I mean, the data demonstrates that um, communities of color have even worse uh, digital equity disparities. Uh, they are less likely to have a laptop or a home computer and less likely to have the kind of high-speed internet that can support uh, things like telehealth and telemedicine interventions. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, when we're out there, um, we have uh, a number of community health centers that we've partnered with in predominantly uh, Spanish-speaking portions of of our city here in Boston. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the interesting thing is that um, we are all set when it comes to Spanish-speaking uh, resources. The FCC has done a really good job getting the website set up for that. Uh, but what we're, what, we're, what we're learning, actually, is we're struggling with some of the other languages. I'll give you an example. Last Friday, we, just, we did not have a Cape Verdean uh, translator on hand. Um, and it turns out that that was a population uh, that uh, was served by this community health center. So, so, you know, really, I think one of the lessons that we're learning here is um, you know, you've got to really work closely with the community to see what exactly do they need from a language support uh, standpoint and how can we best match our resources to that. Yeah. And Vote ER, um, the first initiative you described, you know, that came on my radar and a bunch of emergency department clinician colleagues, teammates uh, wore their badges. And one of my observations is, Yes, there was signing up of patients, but there was a lot of signing up of each other, uh, other hospital colleagues, other hospital workers and other departments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I think um, healthcare providers across the country are seeing, you know, the brokenness of, of this 
healthcare system that, that we work in on a nightly basis. And, and we have a decision to make, you know, what, what do we do uh, in the face of that brokenness, right? It's almost like, it's like that to use a bad uh, analogy. It's like that, uh, that scene in the matrix where Neo gets, uh, gets, gets a choice between the red pill and the blue pill. It's like you, you, you can choose to um, uh, not see uh, how bad things have gotten uh, uh, or you can wake up to the reality of, of where we are and you can decide to do something about it. And what we saw with VODR is healthcare providers across the country deciding to do something really simple, which is just make sure that you are registered to vote, right? The data demonstrates, unfortunately, that physicians vote at up to 20% lower rates than the average voter. And so we got to take care of our own house first. And we're seeing that all, all across the country with VODR. Proud to have over 50,000 healthcare providers across the country wearing those VODR badges and helping themselves and their patients get registered to vote. 100%. You just finished a year in Washington, D.C. as a White House fellow. Uh, what did you learn about yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'll start with just what what I knew before I came in and what I was hoping to learn during the year. I knew that I had um, I had developed a a skill set at grassroots mobilizing, and I knew that while I was good at that, that was not going to be enough. I knew that if I was really uh, interested in making the kinds of transformational, transformational and sustainable change, I was going to have to figure out this dance between the grassroots and the grass tops, right? Because the federal government, right, is the is the is the best way to impact the most people in the most number of ways. And so I knew I had to figure out how to get that coordination right between the grassroots organizing I had been doing and translating that into systemic change at the grass tops. What I learned about myself is that in that process, I had I'd always sort of shunned, you know, sort of the 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 inside game work, right? I'd, I'd always shunned the like federal government or the, the 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 formal authority work. I'd much rather, as Steve Jobs would say, I'd much rather be a pirate than work for the Navy, right? Um, I thought that I would not like being in the federal government because uh, it would be too slow or too bureaucratic. And it just, to me, was a, just another puzzle, another challenge to try and solve, another place to try and figure out how do you make change here quickly and how do you work with people? And bottom line, Reese, I think, you know, I, I learned what you already know, and that is that it comes down to relationships and how you build, sustain, and nurture those relationships. It's all people at the end of the day. Um, and so I think uh, if I if I could share one thing, it's that, um, you know, I... I um, I, I, I reinforced how important it is to take care of people and and, and to really uh, sustain and nurture relationships between the folks that you're working with. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of relationships, you've been asked a lot about mentoring and mentorship. You identify as a mentee, you identify as a mentor. You know, can you think of a time that a mentor-mentee relationship just went bad and it just went wrong or you had to break up with your mentor or your mentor broke up with you? I don't think I have a good answer for you on that one. Um, I, maybe this is a bad thing, but I, um, 
I think that if someone has taken the time to learn enough about me to mentor me, um, I want that person in my life moving forward. Now, it's possible that we will shift our relationship and the, and, and the nature of the relationship will change. The cadence of talking and the expectations might, 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 might transform. But if, but if someone has cared enough to learn about me and my work, I, I want to keep that person in, in my orbit, right? Because ultimately, uh, you just never know what life has in store for you. And you never know, actually, if that mentor who you worked with eight years ago on that project um, will be very, very, very useful as someone who will provide some, you know, clear counsel on an issue or will have expertise that you need in the future. And so I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, quick to discard or, uh, you know, sort of let, let those kinds of relationships go because I think that I just don't know everything quite frankly. And um, I, I don't know who in the future might be useful in terms of doing this critical work. Like the work is hard enough that we're trying to do here. Um, and I'm going to need all the help I can get uh, to make sure it's done in the right way. And, and that's going to require, you know, surrounding myself with people who are smarter than me in really specific ways. Yeah. Hence the finding allies and developing your reservoir of people. That's right. That's right. So you and I are both emergency physicians, and we see it all. And before we pressed play, you were talking about how we're perhaps some of the best people to act, act on the problems. Uh, don't look the other way. Don't wait for someone else to do it. In fact, the first time we recorded, you're like, no one's coming to help. No one's coming to help. We have to do this. Um, and so... For our audience members that haven't spent any time in the emergency department, don't ever even want to visit. And believe me, patients say all the time, Doc, I really don't want to be here. <laughs> and I say to them, listen, I completely get it. I completely get it. Um, you know, what is it that we see? What is it that we see that gets you going, that makes you act? Yeah, particularly now, Reese, I don't know how things are for you guys in Philly, but uh, man, our wait times have have multiplied and you know, things are, are really, really bad right now. I think there's a, there's a, um, things are always challenging, um, in the health, in the, in the ER. We are right. We are, we are asked to do so much, but I think in particular now, I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but it's certainly a lot worse than I left from, uh, when I went down to DC. Look, it's a privilege, honestly, to, to be in the emergency room. Um, I'll start with first, and you know this recent, we are the only doctors some of these folks will ever have, right? And to just sit with that and understand the roots of that statement is incredibly important, right? We have a healthcare system that is the most expensive one in the world. And yet we have folks who we are all they have in the emergency room, uh, and so with that, I think we have an incredible opportunity to really you know, provide some inflection point moments in the lives of vulnerable people. I think the second thing is that if you really care about people and if you really care about, um, you know, listening to their stories, there's no, there's no place where you see humanity most in the raw 
than in the emerging. We are, we are subject to the mortal drama of what it means to be human on a nightly basis. We see the everyday violence of poverty. And I think that with that, you, you have, I think, a responsibility as an ER physician um, to do something with that, to carry those stories and to transform them into, poten- into, into potential energy that can potentially uh, address some of the policy issues uh, that, that, are, that, are, that are causing our patients' problems in the first place. Um, and then I think the last piece is that, you know, we are, uh, uh, we are also there in people's, you know, worst days of their lives. And, you know, it's an, it's, it's a privilege, I think, just to simply sit in the rubble with people. Right. And often what our patients are asking us is like, can you listen while I feel this? And, uh, that has nothing to do with medicine like, and everything to do with medicine, if you know what I mean. Like, it has nothing to do with the biological or the pathophys. It has everything to do with, can you be a, uh, a good human being and listen to another uh, human being feeling, uh, you know, some, uh, some really intense feelings uh, in, a, in a hard time in their life. And that's just an incredible, incredible privilege. Yeah. You and I are on the same page. And in fact, um, you've shared that you have an active meditation practice I do as well, uh, coupled with some yoga. And what I've noticed is the more uh, I can maintain that practice and be present with that practice for myself, and then I bring that to work, I have noticed a change with the intensity of my interactions and my relationship and of the understanding of patients. Yeah, and I take it a step further. I mean, I, I I agree with all of that. And you know, one thing I'm beginning to notice is, you know, what what I derive um, uh, satisfaction from when I'm meditating is this self transcendence, right? This ability to sort of like move beyond the daily chatter, the like you know everyday kind of you know, the annoyances of of, of living in in our um, in our like always constantly on world. Um, and it's, it's like this, this like ability to step away from the self, uh, that is important when I'm meditating. Um, I, you know, I'm finding actually that, that like, as I, you know, I've been, you know, in, in emergency medicine now for about eight years, as I'm, as I'm getting, um, more experienced, I'm realizing that there is a certain meditative element to taking care of another human being too. It's this, again, self-transcendence. You are leaving yourself to an extent at the door and, and really focusing 100% of your efforts on listening to this person, being attentive and attuned to them, and really trying to uh, put yourself aside and, and, um, and be there for that person. It's, in, in essence, it's like the most present I think I ever am is in the emergency department, right? Because you're just there, right? You have to be, because if you're not, you miss them. Yeah. That presence amidst noise, amidst beeping, signals, uh, (laughs) um, screaming, uh, all sorts of noises of crying, pain, um, that ability to find that quiet and that, as uh, is said, that independence of solitude 
is is what emergency medicine is about. I don't know if you have this experience when you're at Penn Station or Grand Central Station or fill in the blank. I look around and I think this is just like the emergency department, this chaos, these noises, but somehow it all works and you can find your way to where you need to go. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Health design is one of my particular interests, sort of patient-centered, person-centered, um, end user utility and designing so that it really helps and keeps that person central to the design iteration brainstorming process. So how does a healthier democracy health design and use the end user as part of the process? It's a great, great, great question. So the first thing I'll say is, is it's a sort of a, a strange metaphor, but, but, but stick with me on this. You know, you, you and I know that you can't you can't transfuse someone blood through a 24 gauge needle. You can't expect that you are going to get uh, uh, someone resuscitated, uh, you know, through a butterfly, right? Similarly, you can't expect to uh, create transformative change in the healthcare space without the infrastructure. Right? Without the organizations and without the logistical and administrative support to get that work done, uh, there are there are ideas uh, that healthcare providers have all across this country about how to make the healthcare system better. And time and time again, those providers find number one, they're tired, they're working you know uh, long shifts, and two, it's hard to really. Uh, think about, well, what do I do next? I've got an idea. I've got the beginning of a plan, but where do I go next to begin to sort of put this in motion? And, um, and, and, that's, and that's what we are doing with A Healthy Democracy is really thinking about, okay, now you've got a plan, you've got an idea. Let's put the patient at the center of that. And let's make sure that we can think through this in a behaviorally uh, uh, intelligent way in terms of uh, using behavioral science to really create um, nudges that make that uh, intervention uh, more seamless and uh, done in a, in a better way. And let's get to work and let's see if we can get it done. Um, and so I think your, your point about, you know, having behavioral design be at the center is, is critically important. Yeah. Do you bring patients into the room? Do you bring caregivers into the room and ask them, would this work? Would this not work? Would you do this? Would you use that? Absolutely. And I'll give you an example of that. So with get wavered, uh, when we do our get wavered sessions, right? When we get people uh, these uh, DAX waivers that we talked about, uh, so they go out and provide prescribe Suboxone or buprenorphine, uh, we actually bring patients back. One of the most important um, interventions that we do is we find patients who, in our in the emergency department, that we are getting people wavered. Uh, you, we actually, you know, find someone who is in recovery. And bring them back to talk to those clinicians and, uh, and tell them their story about how, you know, because someone cared, because someone went the extra distance, the extra mile, and chose to uh, help get them connected to uh, medication treatment, they got their life back, they got their job back, they got their marriage back. Um, and then the patients tell them, and in the future, here's how, uh, just so you know, uh, uh, here's how the way you communicate to me lands on me. And here are the things that I want you to know uh, now that you are out there helping patients with this newfound power 
um, of, uh, of a buprenorphine uh, prescription. And so, you know, keeping patients at the center and listening to them, again, it comes back to those who are most proximal to the problem are most proximal to the solution and patients and healthcare providers really, uh, I think are the source of, uh, of the knowledge for what we need to, to make things right in our healthcare system. hundred percent, hundred percent. That being said, I'm sure like, you know, I'm team Alistair. Like I, I, I love what you're doing. I love your work. I believe in your work. It aligns with my values. You must have naysayers. You must have the, nah, that'll never work. Nah, there's no funding for that. These people don't, they're not interested in our help. You know, we, 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 we work with naysayers all the time. And I'm wondering, you know, have you seen any patterns about the naysayers and how do you navigate those people? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really good question. So the first thing I'll say is that I learned a long time ago that actually the naysayers have a tremendous amount of information for me. And I, you know, I think the first, the first step is separating the bullshit from the the real genuine concern. Um, Because there are people who just are not interested because their egos are involved or they're not interested because they, you know, have a bone to pick or an ax to grind. And, and that's important to discern and distinguish what is genuine concern and what is not when there's genuine concern, boy, I listen and I'm hungry for that information because the more I can understand why what we're proposing is not going to work, Man, there are lots of secrets in there for how we're going to make it work better in the future. Um, I, I took a transformational leadership class back at uh, the Kennedy School, and um, the 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 lesson of one of the sectors, one of the, the chapters, was keep your opposition close. And I take that as a metaphor. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to like get lunch with them every night, but like or every every day. But but it does mean for me that I have to listen and try to understand. Um, what is it about this that doesn't work for you? And I'm not going to, not necessarily going to change the whole approach, but perhaps there are ways in which I might be able to uh, adapt an approach that works for a larger audience. Now, I'll say that I'm all about sequencing, Risa, right? So the first step for me is always identifying allies and mobilizing the support that I, that we already have and getting the first 10, 15, 20, 25% of folks who are already on board, getting them activated and mobile. That's a critical step that most people, I think, uh, 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 miss. They, they jump to uh, trying to battle it out or negotiate with the opposition when they haven't actually mobilized their own base of support first. So I think that's, that's kind of the, the two things that I would say on that reason. You use your voice. You are advocating. Uh, what would be your call to action for people that want to start using their voice? And what for you was sort of, you know, the the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, of of speaking up and using your voice? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I I think Risa and we we've spoken about this in the past, but I, I had a I had a near death experience when I was pretty young when I was 16 years old, uh, as a, as a senior in high school. And, you know, by all rights, I, um, you know, I, I either could have died that night or 
could, should have been disabled in a way that, that would have been transformative for me. But I wasn't. I was spared. And I think that what has happened to me since then, I think I've felt since that moment, like I've been living this, this post-mortem bonus round, right? Like this, this, this extra life that I have now. And so with it, I have a responsibility to use this, this time that I have left. And it's very clear to me what, what I need to do. Um, and, and that is, I've got to create a life that metaphorically speaking, puts its thumb on the scales uh, for vulnerable people in this country. And that's going to be first as an, as an ER physician, but it won't end there. And so I think that uh, for those who are listening, you are living in, in, I think, the beginning of the golden age of healthcare provider organizing. Look around you. There are magic beanstalks uh, 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 erupting everywhere. There are there's, there's We Got Us. There's the work with, with Get Us PPE. You saw across the country providers mobilizing around that. There's Vote ER. There's the Reproductive Healthcare Coalition that the American Medical Women's Association leads on abortion access. I mean, you are living in the golden age, I think, of provider organizing. You got to get in the game, right? Because you've got a decision to make. There's, there's a, a quote that I think about a lot um, uh, that James Baldwin uh, uh, said, and that is that not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And so you'll have a decision to make out there, listeners. And that is, you know, you, you see how the healthcare system is and what will you do now that you see, because you can't unsee it. And so we invite you to get in the game. The Risa wrap up. Major thanks to Dr. Alistair Martin, Alistair. And as I told him, I am Team Alistair. What I really like about his approach is his welcoming in, his warmth, his openingness, the fact that he doesn't close doors on people and on relationships. He is collecting allies, he says. He's collecting his reservoir of people. And you listeners should try to be a part of that reservoir. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.